with me to Colossians chapter 1 today. That's where we will be going. We're going to take a little break, as in just one week, but a little break from our uh, series in Zechariah. We've been preaching through uh, some, some Old Testament minor prophets, right? Uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah, which there's, there's nothing minor in there. They're just called minor prophets because they're smaller um, and, and we're going to jump forward to Colossians chapter 1 and, and, of course, see themes that we've been seeing throughout Zephaniah and Haggai and Zechariah, these themes of, of God and his work that he's doing and his holiness and his sovereignty. And, and we see a lot of these summed up uh, throughout the book of Colossians, really, um, but especially where we will be today in Colossians chapter 1. And once you get there, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you are great and awesome and supreme, sovereign, so much greater than we are. And God, yet you love us. God, yet you died for us, yet you purchased us with your blood. God, and you are you are making us new, making us more like yourself, and one day. For those who are in Christ, you will take us to be with you. God, we, we glorify you for that. We praise you for how great and awesome and loving and merciful and gracious and kind you are. And God, the, the leash of words doesn't allow us to explain how great you are. So God, thank you. Thank you for who you are, for your love, God, for your mercy, for your grace, God, for your Holy Spirit leading us, guiding us, illuminating our hearts. God, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, as we read your word and study your word, God, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to see your beauty and glory more and more, that we would see you for who you truly are. We would see you with the eye of our heart and love you and cherish you and desire to follow you in everything we do, in everything we think, in everything we say. God, make us more like yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Again, Colossians chapter 1. Um, we're going to be really looking at the, at the crux, the kind of the high point of the book of Colossians. Um, just a couple weeks ago, we got through going through Colossians with the students, and we took about 14 weeks and walked through this, this short yet rich book um, that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Um, he wrote for really a couple of purposes, and this, this kind of helps us understand um, really what we're reading and, and why we're reading it. Um, but, but Paul wrote the book of Colossians to this church in Colossae mostly because there was a heresy going on that said, you need Jesus plus these other things, right? This heresy was saying Jesus is good, Jesus is okay, but, but Jesus is not enough. You need this and this, and, and you need to, to have strict, uh, strict uh, laws, and you need to keep the Sabbath strictly, and you need to keep these feasts and these festivals and these new moons and these, these things that, that people were putting on them, and, and they were preaching this heresy that was essentially saying Jesus was not enough. And what we, as modern-day believers, and as Paul was doing back in the first century, was saying, Jesus really is enough. If there's, if there's three words we could use to sum up um, the entire book of Colossians, it would be, Jesus is enough. We don't need anything else. 
Christ is it. If everything was stripped away, Jesus would be enough. I mean, that's really the, the theme of, of so much of Scripture. Uh, look at the book of Job, right? As everything he had was stripped away, and he saw that God was enough, that God was it. And his heart was changed, and he saw that he didn't need these other things. All his affections needed to go towards God. And, and so, so Paul is going to make this argument here, and especially where we're going to go, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that, that Jesus is enough. Jesus is it. And that's what we're saying here as, as First Baptist Lovington, as modern-day believers, that, that God is, is enough. And so as we look at the Bible, we see that the Bible is mainly about God and not us. Right? We, we tend to think like the Bible's about us and, and what we should be doing. But really, when we look at Scripture, we see this love letter written by the Supreme God towards His people to build an affection for us. So, so our daily Bible reading, as, as we read in Colossians 1.15 through 20, which is really a good summation of, of all of Scripture, uh, the supremacy and centrality of Christ, uh, we see this, this theme of Jesus is enough, of course, like we've said. And so our, our scripture reading should look less like a Christian. Too often our scripture reading is this thing where we open up God's word and we say, what do I have to do today? That's a terrible way to live. What do I have to do today? What, what is it that God is calling me to do today? And we, we t- tend to make it about us and what we have to do and that we have to be enough. And what scripture, the theme of the gospel is that Jesus is enough. So rather than opening up God's word and saying, okay, what do I have to do today? Our opening up of God's scripture should say, uh, our question to ourselves should be, how can I love and enjoy God more? How do I find true satisfaction in God alone? As, as I read God's word, my prayer should be not that God um, put all these burdens on me so I have to do these things. But rather, we should see the beauty of God. And our prayer should be, God, help me to see your glory and your majesty and your excellencies. And then in that, I will desire to follow him, to walk in righteousness, to walk in holiness, not because of some duty, not because of some guilt, but because we love and cherish and enjoy God above everything else. And so that's the argument that, that Paul is making here in Colossians 1. So again, uh, Colossians, there's this heresy that was invaded, has invaded the church. It says Jesus was enough. The, the town of Colossae was actually a pretty small town um, next to uh, a larger town, Laodicea, which was much more important um, to, to the Roman Empire at that time. Uh, than Colossi was. So so kind of like, and I'm, I'm not stepping on your toes, but kind of like Hobbs and Lovington, right? Hobbs is this big, booming town, right? And when we Lovington, we're, we're growing still, um, but, but we're a smaller town. And so I think this is why this is so encouraging to me in the fact that God still cares about this small town, this small church, right? And God loves them, and, and he didn't just leave them on their own, right? And, and Paul wrote this letter to this small town church in, uh, in Colossae. It was led by, uh, Paul had actually never been there. Paul was writing this from a prison. Um, Paul uh, had one of his disciples that really founded and is leading this church named Epaphras. So Paul uh, himself had never been to Colossae, but, but had a, a close, dear friend that he discipled, Epaphras, who was leading this church. So this really puts some things into perspective as we read this letter. I think Douglas Moo kind of sums up this text really well. 
um, in scope of the entire letter of Colossians and really in scope of all of Scripture. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Colossians, says, The Christology of Colossians 1, 15-20 serves the greater purpose of the letter by setting forth Christ as the exclusive instrument through whom God created the universe and through whom he is in the process of pacifying the universe. In other words, Christ, right, this, these six verses are showing us that Christ is the one who created the universe, who sustains the universe, and is the one who is making everything right within the universe, making all things new. And we see that here as we read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So let's go to go there. Um, this is pretty close to the letter, Paul, to the beginning of the letter. Paul just had this prayer and this thanksgiving for the Colossians, and now he's going to open up their mind and our minds to the beauty of King Jesus. Verse 15, he says, He, first of all, before we move on, we have to realize who that he is. It's talking about Christ, right? This, this whole letter, the whole Bible is talking about Christ, but this he specifically is talking about Jesus, the Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So let's, let's really dissect these verses and look into them. So the first thing we see there is he is the image of the invisible God. This is, this is really how John begins his gospel, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is how the writer of Hebrews begins his letter in Hebrews, that Jesus is the exact imprint and expression of God, right? And so we see this theme throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, that Jesus is God himself. Uh, this is so important. This would especially have been important to a Greek culture that Paul is writing to, this idea of image, right? This idea of image resonated with this audience because they had images for everything, for all their gods, right? They had the images for, for all these dead gods that they worshipped, right? Um, um, in the pantheon, there were thousands and thousands of images of dead gods, and you could go for whatever need you you had, um, your love life, or or for war, or for your work, or if you needed food, or if you needed help with parenting, you could go to one of these dead images and pray to them, or worship them, or appease them, or offer some kind of sacrifice to them to to try to uh, to to get whatever you needed, right? And so, so this, this culture would have had this clear idea of images, of images of God. But they, they were these dead gods, these dead statues. And so Paul flips that around, and Paul is now talking about the alive, resurrected Christ. And he says, he is the image of the invisible God. This living, breathing man who we walked with, we talked with, who ate fish and bread with us who taught us, who loved us, who embraced us, who opened the eyes of the blind, who, who uh, unstopped deaf, deaf ears, who raised dead people back to life, who did these great things and the apostles saw him do it. This Jesus is God himself. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the, he's the alive image, not like all the dead statues that there were. And even in Colossae had, had thousands of statues of dead gods, representing dead gods. And we have the one image of the true living God, Jesus. 
Jesus is it. Jesus is the image of God. Let's go to the second part of that, that verse. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now this word trips a lot of people up. We see firstborn used. Uh, this is this is where like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, go way off and, and say, yes, Jesus was the son of God, but no, he's not God himself, right? And so we see that. And we see that with every other heresy or religion that denies that Jesus is God. Jesus may have been a good prophet, some people say, um, but he wasn't God himself. This firstborn, the idea that it is that it is putting there is not that that God was that Jesus was created by God as we're going to see in the next verse but rather that Jesus is the first place above everything else above all of creation right Jesus has always been Jesus is the preeminent one right or the one who has always existed the one who existed before time he's the first one the one who went before us right this is this would have been this this mind-blowing thing because people, many of these people, fresh in their minds, was Jesus walking on this earth. Right? How could he be firstborn before the rest of creation? What Paul is saying here is Jesus is above all else. He's the first. He's the preeminent one. He's the prototype. He's the one who has gone before, before creation. Jesus was not born, but rather is first in time, who is over all parts of creation. The other thing that this verse tells us, Firstborn, this idea of firstborn, is that Jesus is the heir of all things. Right? In, in other words, this idea of firstborn was the, the one, firstborn would have been the one who inherited all of their, whatever their parents had. And now Jesus, the being the firstborn, is, is the heir of all things, the heir of creation. And of course, as we go on, we see that he's the one who created those things, so they're rightfully his. Jesus rightfully owns you and I. Jesus rightfully owns every part of creation. There is not one square inch in the entirety of the universe that Jesus does not say mine. That it's not held together by God. And, and remember, we have to remember uh, these first three verses. I, I didn't get to explain this at first, but these first three verses, are God, or Paul is really talking about all of creation. And then we'll see the new creation, the church. But, but all of creation is held together by Christ and Christ alone. This idea of firstborn is not a new thing, but would have been uh, very familiar with people who knew the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 89 verse 27 says this, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The, the psalmist there is talking about David, but as we read on, we see he's really pointing to the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the firstborn, the, the heir of all things, the king above all kings. That's Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Let's go on to verse 16. For by him all things were created. So, so not only is God the, the, or Jesus the preeminent one, the one who has always existed, but he's also the one who created all things. He's also the creating agent of the universe. All things in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Paul show, is showing us here that Jesus is the creator of things which our human minds can comprehend, visible things, right? We can see trees. We can, we can see mountains. We can see each other. Jesus created us. But also he goes on and he says, 
invisible things, right? Things that we don't necessarily understand, that the human mind cannot comprehend. Jesus is the creator of those things as well. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And we tend to think of this as, as angels in heaven. And yes, it's absolutely those things. But in reality, every time scripture, the New Testament in particular, talks about rulers or authorities of this world, he's talking about the demonic realm. Right? So not only did Jesus create, and not only is he the creator and Lord over, over his angels, and heaven, right? He created and he rules over the demons and Satan himself. That should be comforting to us that this world is not out of control, that Satan is not just running loose and Jesus can't control him. Satan is on a leash held by Christ. Christ is in complete control over his creation. He created them and he's sustaining his creation. I think a beautiful picture of this is in Job. And this is often a thing that we overlook in Job. But in Job, as as God is talking to Satan, Satan can't do anything to Job until God gives him permission. Right? God tells Job, okay, you can go and harm Job and his family, do whatever you wish, just, just don't kill Job, essentially, is what he tells him, right? Satan's on this leash. We, t- we tend to think of Satan as this huge, powerful being, and he is, and he is deceiving people, and he is roaring, uh, roaming around like a roaring lion, right? Looking to, to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus is still in control. Jesus has conquered him. Ephesians 3 tells us that this gathering that we're doing here, this church gathering, this gathering of believers, is a proclamation to Satan that he has lost. That, that Jesus has conquered, that Jesus has won. Jesus is sustaining his creation. And then we see this one little uh, phrase at the end. So it says, all things were created through him. So Paul's reiterating that. Jesus created all things and for him. So not only did Jesus create everything, Jesus is the one for whom all things were created. We weren't created for ourselves. We were created for Christ and Christ alone. This means a few things. This means that Jesus is not a a means to an end, but the end itself. Too often we, we act like Jesus is an ATM or one of those Greek gods that we go to when we need something and, and say, hey, Jesus, I need this. Uh, I need you to do this for me. So then I'm, I'm going to go to church. I'll go to church three weeks in a row, right, if you'll just do this for me or, or whatever, right? And we treat Jesus as if he's some ATM or some fairy or some genie giving us this wish instead of the one whom we were created for. Jesus is not created for us. Now, don't get this wrong. He did come to this world to serve us, right? Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, right? To give us an example. But ultimately, Jesus was, is not here for our purposes. We exist for Christ, right? That's our mission statement here at First Baptist Loving, Lovington. The completed work of Christ exists for us, right? What he's did on, done on the cross in his resurrection, and we exist for Christ. Our purpose is, is to glorify, to make much of him, nothing else. Jesus is it. 
And that's the reason why we talk so much about him here and make much of him alone. We look at scripture and we can see, like in Luke 24, in the road to Emmaus, when Jesus took the two disciples through all of the law and the prophets and showed how they pointed to him. Right? We see throughout scripture this theme, Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's about Jesus. This church exists for Jesus, not for other things. We tend to, to think, right, in our actions, in our practice, that, that this church exists for, for, any, for other things. And we forget the one reason why we were created, to glorify Christ, to make much of Christ. Curtis Vaughn says it like this. He's not related to me, by the way. <clears throat> he says, creation is for Christ in the sense that he is the end for which all things exist. The goal toward whom all things were intended to move. That, that's this beautiful picture. And that's why Jesus says, you can't be on the fence, right? You're either for me or against me. We are either moving towards Christ or we are moving towards destruction, towards eternal separation from him because all things are going to be made right one day. Creation is going to be made right one day. And as we get into verse 18, 19, and 20, we're going to see Jesus' relationship specifically to the new creation. Right now we're looking at the all of the creation. Uh, but, but now we're going to, as we come into verse 17 and then into 18, we see Jesus' relationship with all of creation. Let's read verses 17 and 18. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So right there in the first phrase of verse 17, and he is before all things. Right, this is where really um, this sums up verses 15 and 16, Jesus' relationship to creation. And as we get to the next part of this verse, we're going to see Jesus' relationship to new creation. But this sums up the last two verses. He is before all things. Jesus is it. Jesus is above all things. Not only is Jesus the image of God, the one who has always existed, the one who created all things, and the one for whom all things were created, but he also stands above and before anything else. You and me, our spouses, our children, our families, everything else, Christ is above those things. We were, we were intended to move towards him. We were created for him. Therefore, therefore, he is above all things. One of my favorite stories uh, from, from church history, from first century church history, uh, towards the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, there was a Roman emperor who was ruling and he was trying to get rid of, of, of Christians. And Christianity was just spreading throughout the, emper the empire. And so uh, he, he knew he couldn't eradicate Christians. So what he did is he decided to write a letter to this, to this large group of Christians. And he wrote a letter and he said, I would like to um, invite you guys to put a statue of Jesus in the Pantheon. Right? So he's inviting them. Here's, here's the Roman emperor, the ruler of the known world, inviting the Christians, right? these, these small town fishermen right? who are running around for their lives, proclaiming the gospel, to go and put a statue of Jesus in the Pantheon. And we would have think we would think like in our modern day uh, American patriotism, like yes, let's do it. Let's put let's put the the statue in the White House or or whatever. Right? Let's put the statue in the Pantheon with all the other thousands of gods. And so you would have thought they would have been real excited for this. Instead, they wrote back and they said, "Don't you dare put a statue of Jesus in there, because if you do, we're going to go in there ourselves and tear it down. And if you can put it back up again, we're going to go in and tear it down again." 
And if you put it back up, we're going to go and tear it down again. And they threatened to tear it down. They said, you will not put a statue of Jesus in there. Because Jesus is not just some statue, some image to be kept with your thousands of other gods. Because above that, on the Pantheon read, Caesar, Lord of Lords and Kings of King, King of Kings. And that's Jesus' place. That's where Jesus is above everything else. Jesus is the King of Kings, is the Lord of Lords. He stands before and above all things. Think about if we thought, if we really thought about this in our lives, if we really believed that Jesus was above and, and before all things, how would that change every aspect of our lives, our finances, our careers, our hobbies? Just ask ourselves that question for a minute. What do we spend most of our finances on? What do we spend most of our time at our career and our job doing? What do we spend most of our hobbies doing? Are they glorifying Christ or are they for our own purposes? Right? How would that change every aspect of our life if we realized Jesus really is above and before everything else? Jesus really is it. And let's go to the second part of verse 17. And in him all things hold together. So now we see 17b here is tying Christ's relationship to creation and his relationship with his body. So, so not only does Christ hold all of creation together, he holds his new creation together. The church, us, the people who have been grafted in to the people of Christ. Jesus is holding us together. So not only was Christ the creating agent at the beginning of time, but he is also currently holding us together as well as his new creation. Right? We see that. And this is not a past thing. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is telling the Colossians and telling us, Jesus is still holding things together. He's not dead. He's not in the grave. He's not a dead image in the pantheon. He is a living, breathing, moving, acting God who is holding all of his creation together, who is holding his bride together, who will hold us and keep us to the end. Christian, that should encourage us, that his purposes will be accomplished. Isaiah 46 tells us this. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. Once I get there. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Transgressors, Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Not one thing in Christ's creation, not one thing in Christ's purposes, in his plan, in his will, will not happen. Christ is in control. He's the one who has declared the beginning from the end. He's the one who has written the story. He's the one who's holding us. He's the one who will keep us, who will make us persevere to the end. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. Jude tells us at the end of the book of Jude, when he says, now to him, talking about Jesus, who is able to to make you stand before the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Jesus is holding us and keeping us and making us stand to the end, and only he can make us stand without blemish before God. If we trusted that Christ was holding us and keeping us to the end, Christian, would it change the conversations we have? Like if we believe that Jesus was really going to hold us to the end and nothing would separate us from the love of Christ, 
Not even the collapse of our nation. Nothing. How would that change the conversations that we have? How would that change the way we spent our money? How would that change the way we leveraged our time? How would that change the way we led and related to our family? How would that change the way I related to my wife and to my children? How would that change the way that we, that we did life? If we truly believed that Christ is holding us and will keep us and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, as Romans 8 tells us. That would radically change the way we live life. Jesus is also the head of the body, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus, Paul uses this picture of the head, right? The one controlling the body. If you guys know anything about anatomy, you if the head's gone, the body's not going to do anything, right? The head is controlling the body, except in cockroaches. Those things are difficult to kill. But, <clears throat> but everything else, the head is gone, the body is, is useless, it doesn't do anything. It might be able to run around for a little bit, right? I remember um, Brian brought up that I went to private school. So these are kind of the kinds of field trips we went in private school. But my principal also had a farm. So growing up in Albuquerque, being a city boy, I was not used to this. So we went outside, went to a farm, and he was going to show us how to uh, kill a chicken, and he was going to cook a chicken for us. And uh, he had a blunt a blunt um, tomahawk or axe or whatever. And so he went to chop it, and like half of its head is off. And he drops it and blood squirt and everything. And this thing's running around. And of course, people are screaming. It was awesome. I was like a 15-year-old boy, like chasing it around, trying to get blood on girls. It was, it was really fun. But finally he caught it, and after about three more chops, the head came off. And the chicken ran around for a little longer and then dropped, right? Like, like it, had, it had a little bit of time. To, to run around and, and do some, some reckless, useless activity. But eventually it died. Church, if we're not bound to our source of life and authority, to Christ, if our mission is not Christ, if our focus is anything but Christ, we are a dead church doing reckless activity, running around doing nothing. We might as well sell this building and disband if that's the case. Because we are not, if we are not focused on Christ, we are dead. We are not connected to the head, the one who is leading the church, who is holding to the, to the church. And Jesus is also the firstborn and preeminent one in the creation. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Salvation belongs to him. Jesus conquered the grave. He's the one who went before us. Jesus has now established this new order of resurrection. Jesus said, I conquered Satan, sin, and death, and now I can conquer it for you as well. I will raise your bodies from the grave. I will bring you to be with me. Jesus has always been over all creation, but now his resurrection shows that he has established power even over a broken and fallen world. J.D. Greer says it like this, Jesus is first and then went first. So Jesus is first. He's above everything else. But then he also went first. He went to death first. He went and, and ripped the gates off of the, the, the gates of hell off for us, conquered Satan, sin, and death for us, went before us. And now he is holding on to us, sustaining us. He is our source of life, our source of authority. Colossians, and we'll finish up with Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 19 again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
It wasn't a burden for God to say, all of me is in Christ. It was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is not a sub-God or this Hercules-type figure, right? We tend to think of him like a Hercules, like this sub-God, the son of God, the son of Zeus, right? But Jesus is God. Jesus is fullness of, is the fullness of God. Every attribute in God is in Christ as well. And this doctrine is essential to who we are as, as the new creation, as followers of Christ. The fact that Jesus is it. Jesus is worthy of all of our praise and affection. Jesus is God himself. And then as we get to verse 20, it says, And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this does not mean that Jesus is going to save everyone, right? People try to use this for this universal atonement that everyone will be saved. Remember, Paul is specifically talking about the new creation here. All of the new creation will be saved. All of his body, his church will be saved. All things, right? The fact that things need to be reconciled to Christ shows that the lordship of Christ over everything has somehow been disrupted. So somehow there's been this disruption within his, his people. And they, they need a reconciler. But Jesus is going to make all things right. Jesus is the one doing the work here. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So he's going to save his people and he's going to vanquish all evil. Right? All evil will be gone. The new heavens and the new earth will not have evil. Evil will be this, this past memory that, that is fading, that it will be no more. Because Jesus has vanquished it. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has overcome. Jesus is it. And he overcame by the blood of his cross. Look at that, that last phrase, making peace by the blood of his cross. That makes no sense in our minds when we, when we think of this violent, bloody mess on the cross, right? This violent, uh, disfigured body hanging on the cross, bleeding and scarred and bruised, dying, right, with blood coming out everywhere. That's what bought, bought us peace, right? Jesus being punished by the Father for our wretchedness, hanging on the cross is what bought us peace, Bought us peace with God. Bought us right relationship with God. Reconciliation and right standing before the Father. Because of what Jesus has done. And all of Scripture is pointing to this. All of Scripture is pointing us to the fact that Jesus has conquered. We could go throughout New Te Old Testament themes and see that. You and I are not David defeating our Goliaths. We're the scared Israelites on the sideline who can't defeat Goliath. And Jesus comes in as our shepherd to conquer Goliath for us, to conquer Satan's sin and death for us. Jesus is it. We could, we could go throughout New Testament or Old Testament themes and see time after time after time pointing to the cross, pointing us to Jesus. That Jesus is the one who is who's above all else. David Garland says it like this. The theme of human rebellion and sin is an unbroken scarlet thread that runs through the, the entire Bible to the foot of the cross, pointing us back to Christ. The Bible is not mainly about you and I. As we read Zechariah, continue to go through that, it's not mainly about us. 
It's about God and His work that He is doing, His saving, redeeming, kingdom-building work that He and He alone is doing. In order for the modern-day church, church for us, to be focused on the mission of God, it must have a right view of the God of the mission. We can't just be about the mission. We will fail if our focus is not the head. If our focus is the mission, if our focus is, is to, to give money, if our focus is anything else other than Christ and a love and a, and a passion for Him, then we will fail. We're chickens running with our, with our heads off, doing worthless activity, and eventually we will die. Our focus must be Christ, the God of the mission. Too often, church, the modern church looks as if the point of his existence is simply to help poor people, to help people feel loved, to give money to missions, or to put numbers on a piece of paper and send it to the Southern Baptist Convention. Too often, that looks like the reason why we exist. We don't exist for a Sunday school role. We don't exist for for an Annie Armstrong or a Lottie Moon missionary giving. We don't exist even to help poor people. Right? All good things. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But the true purpose of the church must be to enjoy Christ and to help other people see his supremacy and centrality. If we have any other view of church than what is given here in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, then we are wasting our time. Do we leverage church, our time, talents, and resources for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ and his mission? Everything that we have should be leveraged for that. If Christ truly is it, the goal of life, our lives and our gatherings here at Second and Washington must reflect that. Must reflect that, be- that Jesus is it, that Jesus is beautiful, that Jesus is above all things, or else we're just wasting our time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you are awesome. You are supreme. You are so much greater than us. God, I pray that we would see that. I pray that I would see that. God, I pray that I would see, in spite of my many flaws and my sins, the lust and anger and bitterness and pride and arrogance that is within me. God, you still love me and you still saved me. And you're sustaining me and holding on to me. And I don't understand that, that the God of the universe would die on a bloody cross for me. But God, I thank you that you did. And I pray that we would see your beauty. We would see that, that your completed work exists for us and that we exist for you. And God, we would leverage all of our time and talent and resources for the sake of the gospel, for your sake, for your mission for your glory. God, if we, if we could just grasp that concept, Lovington would be radically changed. God, make us new. Make us more like yourself. Focus our eyes upon you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.